Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Welcome to today's podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests today are Tom Spencer, Vice Chairman of the Institute for Environmental Security in The Hague, Andrew Vincent Alder, who's a Senior Fellow and California Representative of the Institute for Environmental Security, and Holmes Hummel, a lecturer and specialist in climate policy at the University of California at Berkeley. Um, Andrew, let's start with you and talk a little bit about the European carbon trading scheme. Uh, recently, President Obama asked for a carbon uh, cap-and-trade bill to be sent to him. Some people uh, look to Europe as a success or a failure in, in, a, in a carbon trading experiment. What lessons can we take from the European experience in, in carbon trading and apply to the U.S.? Well, the um, European trading scheme was initiated in January of 2005. And uh, it was um, uh, after its first year of implementation, there was clearly some, some issues, uh, particularly in terms of the uh, allocation of permits, the amount of carbon that each sector, each industry could, um, could uh, uh, emit, um, and then the viability of the market that came from those decisions. And specifically with reference to California, I know that over the last several months, um, as a result of the intentions expressed in AB 32, uh, there was a California delegation, perhaps several, that went to Brussels to talk to the people who had done the technical implementation of the rules with respect to the ETS to essentially learn best practice, to learn what worked, what didn't work, and so that at the time and place when the um, system is implemented here in California, they could have essentially learned from the uh, the 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 uh, both benefits uh, and, and, and mistakes of... of uh, and what are some of the, what are the top two things they did right and top two things that we don't want to repeat here in the U.S.? I, I know the market th- crashed. A lot of people know it. I think the top two, well, one of the things that they did wrong was in terms of the, as I said, the allocation of, of uh, carbon emission uh, the the giving away the credits for free exa- exactly yeah. and 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 consequently they they gave too many credits as I understand this they gave too many credits and consequently there wasn't the strong market when the system was deployed okay. and so that's really I think key to any carbon any cap and trade system is to sort of get that right because that serves as the baseline for the establishment of the market the market price of carbon okay what have they done right I mean has that is it a successful model there's been a lot of talk radio or cable TV talk about it. It's a failed 
the whole thing has failed. Well, I don't think the whole thing has failed, and Tom may be actually more able to address that than I because he's closer to it at this point. Um, but no, I don't think it's a failure, but I do think that when it's done like any other new market system, it has to be done uh, correctly with as much information and as much good data as possible to establish the market. Because if you're going to have a, a, uh, a good and, and fungible market for carbon, you've got to sort of get the elements of pricing uh, uh, in the right fashion. Tom, how would you answer that? Well, I think Andrew's right. I mean, the, 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 the the first lesson for Californians is to look at the individual experience of companies and individuals as they prepared for this. Uh, and I think the, 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 I, I, didn't, I get the sense that in California people are not yet fully aware of the implications of AB 32 and what they're going to need to do and what it means for a company. Because once you have this kind of cap-and-trade structure, all sorts of other things click in underneath it. And we saw that in the European experience. I think you'll find it in California and eventually you'll find it find it nationally. So there's a lot of kind of training, learning, what is it? Sure, mean it's still early days. Yeah. Yes, but, but at least we've been, we've been through the rough bit. And actually, in retrospect, it went much more smoothly than uh, I think any of us, uh, any of us anticipated. Uh, there's a second advantage, hopefully. When we designed the uh, emissions trading scheme, courtesy of, a, of an amendment from the European Parliament, it was made such that it would be open to link with other schemes. Uh, with the Canadians, with the Australians, uh, but, but primarily with, with, with an American national or subnational scheme. Uh, and so we've actually been, in, we've been inventing a system, trying to guess how it would connect to other people uh, uh, and following through on the carbon price. So it's, it's been tricky, but uh, whatever, the, uh, whatever the opponents say, it's actually a, a success and it's not an institutional structure from which the Europeans are going to back away. There's also a geopolitical, I'm going to get to Holmes in a minute, you know, there's a geopolitical aspect to this. Uh, and so let's talk about sort of the, the geopolitics that are underlying both the, the carbon trading scheme, but also as we march toward, toward Copenhagen mm -hmm. uh, in, in December, the world is supposed to come together on a deal. There's lots of work talk now about getting the big emitters together. The United Nations Secretary General is trying to get what you, I think, Tom, you call the Quad Four, yeah. uh, the, or the Carbon Quad. The Carbon so, Quad. So set up the, the geopolitical uh, framework for us, and then we'll get to Holmes. Yeah. Um, the... From a Europe, European Union viewpoint, we, we, have a pop, we have a climate policy, a climate package. It, it was defended against people who were attacking it on budgetary grounds uh, last year successfully. It has public support. Uh, and Europe's offered to make a 20% cut in emissions by 2020 and would go to 30% if other people come with us. Uh, then we look back across the Atlantic and we see this, this Goliath of the United States suddenly returning to the... Uh, returning to the negotiating table, and quite rightly as uh, you know, the, the biggest guy on the block, wanting, wanting a role in that, wanting to, uh, to integrate properly. Uh, and we, we've been very much aware that whereas last year you were all uh, part of a presidential turmoil and an administrative change, in this coming year it's Europe that gets caught by its politics because we have a, a, a new European Parliament elected in, uh, in June, followed, which has to appoint a new European Commission. And so the actual institutions of the European Union uh, are going to be less than optimal uh, until, the, until the autumn of this year, the fall of this year, late September, early October. And yet the conference in Copenhagen is in December. 
So we've been very negotiations, really. I, I, mean, I mean, negotiations yeah. are running on now. Yeah, but same. two of the big, two of the biggest players have been through political turmoil in the 18 months running up to it. So we're we're very concerned as to how you how you handle that. And one of the one of the wild cards which we've seen is is a kind of an undeclared uh, issue in climate change negotiations, which is the the security aspect. And there's a, there's the Institute for Environmental Security, which is largely funded by the Dutch and other other governments out of the Hague. Uh, have been encouraging, we've been encouraging them to say, look, uh, climate doesn't happen in a, in, in a vacuum, right? There are, if you get climate turmoil, you get uh, climate-driven migration, and people go to war over these, uh, over these issues, and increasingly the military, both here and, uh, and around the world, are beginning to see the significance, just in military terms, of worlds destabilized by, by radical or abrupt climate change. And um, uh, it's my personal belief, and that of the Institute, that you, you, you shouldn't try and strike a, a climate deal, say, between the U.S. and the Chinese without being aware of the geopolitical baggage that hangs on that relationship. So as you begin to look in a more holistic and a more wider way at all these issues together, uh, climate change, politics... Uh, uh, of a multipolar world, uh, where are we going in strategic terms? Then you can begin to, to, to actually carry through a deal. And if you you need U.S. and China, but you also need U.S. and uh, EU, and you actually also need India. So you have to you have to find a subject that pulls all four of these players together ahead of Copenhagen. Uh, I think it can be done, but it's going to be uh, uh, it's going to be touch and go. Well, let's talk about water. I mean, that is often, is that one of the geopolitical drivers and one of the potential destabilizing factors here? Yeah, if you want, it's mountains. It's mountains, ice, water. Um, uh, you and I were both in Delhi uh, in mm-hmm. February for the Delhi Sustainable Development Summit. And there you've literally got the, the, the latest scientists telling us that the Hindu Kush, uh, Himalaya, Tibetan plateaus uh, are, are going to lose most of their glacial uh, and snow cover. Uh, by 2030. Right, so you're looking at the loss of the summer meltwater in all the great rivers of uh, Asia. That's an absolute uh, open Im- invitation for political upheaval, uh, for, uh, uh, for, for tension, even eventually leading to war over the control of water sources on the Tibetan plateau. And we know the Chinese are talking about uh, diverting the Brahmaputra or part of the Brahmaputra to... Uh, to feed Chinese rivers. I mean, this you, you, you cannot look at a more likely cause of war than what you see in the, the melting of the, the loss of the ice and therefore the water stress that follows. And, I mean, uh, so it used to be Taiwan or the Spratly Islands, and now it's... it's uh, now it's it, water. Yeah, and you're saying the military is keenly aware of this, both in the States as well as India and China? Uh, increasingly aware of it. Uh, would be my would be my formulation. We're in the process of putting together a, a, a project involving the military of the whole world to look at this and hopefully uh, to get them to bang the table ahead of Copenhagen and say, hey, climate change isn't a kind of optional exercise. This is absolutely central to national security, to everybody's national security. And you think that'll be key to uh, to getting it through this uh, a deal through the Senate? Well, you you I mean, I I used to be in the European Parliament. I did climate change for the European Parliament throughout the 1990s. And I work very closely with um, <clears throat> with the Clinton administration and, and, and Al Gore and people. Uh, and the key was, and the Senate's been entirely consistent. It's always said we'll sign on to an agreement, but only if India and China are playing a full role. So the question is, how do you find a deal that uh, brings in India and China in a way that can be sold to the Senate in, 20, in 2010? 
And my own view is that you can, you can have a try at doing that at the issues that are, that are on the table, but you probably need to add some extra issues of which um, dealing with black carbon, the soot that settles on the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, on the ice fields, which, which isn't included in the Copenhagen discussions, that would make a huge difference very early, and that's something which India and China could do. And we, So by adding extra issues to the table, we could well make the outcome of the negotiations easier. So you're talking about this in a very different frame, which is uh, not saving polar bears or saving Mother Earth or the way that the climate change usually happens in an environmental frame, and we're putting it in a, in a strategic and a military frame based upon you know, harder national security as, uh, interests. Uh, Holmes, let's drive this home and look at California. We're talking about, like, sticking with water. Uh, there was a report yesterday about sea level rise, five, five feet in 100 years in California. Uh, I think that's a little long away for people. Let's talk about water and, and, and stress in, in California in particular. California hydrologists have been very clear about the vulnerability of major metropolitan areas on our west coast to water stress related to the melting of our own ice storage facilities, which are in the Sierra Nevadas. Right. Before the mortgages could be paid off for buildings that have been trading hands in the last two and three years, it's very likely that we will have a trend of outward migration from the West Coast areas for lack of reliable and affordable water supplies under our current regime. And is, I is that a mainstream view? Because just even yesterday we heard Governor Schwarzenegger talk about 50 million people, California going from 35 to 50 million people. There's still a, an assumption that population will grow in this state. And if you're saying that water will drive a reverse trend, um, has that registered yet with, with uh, policymakers and the public? Because that's very sure contrarian. Enough. Yeah. The, sci the scientists are trying to express emphatically climate change is a game changer, and it has not yet fully been integrated into the strategic and political development of United States industrialization. We have not yet fully committed ourselves to the renovation of our energy infrastructure, which essentially needs to reconcile itself with an abolition of fossil fuel use for most common uses before the end of my career. And I think that the full commitment of and that... You're, you're very young, so for those on the podcast, <laughs> you can't see. The, the, the full commitment of that from a policy standpoint has not yet been expressed, partly because we do not have full buy-in from a public that's well familiar with its own sense of vulnerability. The scientists have been very clear. The lead author of Working Group 2, which is the Nobel Prize-winning IPCC Working Group 2 on vulnerability, is Susan Solomon, an American scientist. Just this past month, she released a report that said that the momentum in the climate system already will carry us through a series of impacts that will continue to intensify even as we make progress towards our mitigation goals. This is why the EU pressure on the United States to continue to consider sharp reductions in fossil fuel use is important. It's an asset to the United States political space to have that outside influence. It is also incumbent upon Americans to become more familiar with our own sense of risk in a risk management regime that has been dominated by security in the 20th century. When thinking about China and India, to link back to Tom, I simply want to close this remark by saying that the IPCC has flagged for us hundreds of millions of people displaced by water stress, well below two degrees Celsius increase above pre-industrial levels. We don't have an evacuation plan for hundreds of millions of people on the move. The friction of hundreds of millions of people on the move can happen very quickly. Absolutely. 
It can be extremely intense, and we always call upon our military apparatus for that kind of swift response. Military cannot make it rain. Military cannot make the snow not melt. Military Well, the Army to, Corps of Engineers could say other things about what they can do when it does rain, but that's a whole other topic. That's yeah. true, but I, my, my point is that we will, we will undoubtedly call in disaster recovery and stress relief circumstances. Another Katrina is what you're talking about, another Katrina that happens uh, on a larger scale in a, in a country uh, with uh, fewer resources to respond. On a recurring basis, on a widespread basis, on a sustained yeah. basis. In India or China, that doesn't even have Walmart to send trucks uh, with with ice or or the as many helicopters to get people off roofs, et cetera, et cetera. This is a pretty dark picture. If you want to draw an, uh, an analogy with Hurricane Katrina, let me just point out that that was a a major consequence of human institutional failure, which is one of the risks that we have to manage. But it was frankly an isolated incident compared to the loss of water in the Ganges River. The water supply can affect orders of magnitude more people for much longer than one week. And this is the kind of sustained, recurring water stress that has to grab the attention of both our security analysts and the American people when thinking about how swiftly these impacts can come to visit friends afar, but also here at home. One of the things uh, Governor Schwarzenegger said yesterday when he was with us was that it's unfortunate that people respond to crisis. Things have to get bad. There needs to be a crisis often amplified and viewed via uh, the, uh, the, the media until people respond. Uh, and that's, you know, Katrina, that happens. But a slow drip, drip, drip crisis, Tom, is, is hard for the media to grab onto. I mean, you know, w- watching glaciers melt is something that's going to happen very slowly. And I'm just thinking about what if, if we're in California not uh, responding to homes to saying, you know, there's going to be out-migration and there's going to be near-term impacts and California's not responding, how are China and India going to respond to something that's, that's a slower melt crisis? I, I, I think there, I'd like to make two points. One, with respect to a comment made by Holmes. Um, the fact of the matter is, and, and you've just alluded to it, the, uh, watching ice melt may be a, uh, seem like a slow process, but we know by recent data that this is happening much more quickly than even the scientists yeah. anticipated three and four years ago. Certainly in Antarctica and the Arctic, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, to go back to a point that Tom was talking about, one of the, I think it's important to appreciate that one of the drivers within India, for example, in terms of acknowledging that you know, climate change is real and it poses a threat to them, is that heretofore the idea has been that the problem has been caused by industrial development in the West over the last century. But with respect to black carbon, that is a de- the, the deposit of soot onto the Himalayan glaciers, that's largely a, sort of an Asia problem, a local problem, which is essentially a local driver. Why does, that, why does uh, soot on ice matter? Because it, it, it's the albedo effect. The, as the ice darkens, it absorbs more heat from the sun, which accelerates the warming of the ice that underlies the, the, the top layer. It's the same thing that happens in the Arctic. As the Arctic ice disappears, the ocean expands, the ocean is darker, it absorbs more heat, which accelerates the, the, uh, the rise in temperature of the water and, and accelerates ice melt. And you can see, the, you can see a dramatic increase in the, in the soot on the Himalayan uh, ice fields. And that's some of it's global, but you can, you can link it directly to the increased emissions from Chinese coal-powered uh, uh, 
power stations mm-hmm. where they actually have the scrubbers to take the damn soot out, but they don't, put, they don't turn them on. Does it cost because, money? Because it co- they lose 8% of productivity. So, I mean, this is, this is the insanity of, uh, uh, that's built well, into all political systems that go into denial. It's all in the tragedy of the commons, the externalities. It's of the tragedy of the commons. But, but do you remember Al Gore's frog? Uh, Al Gore used to make a speech back in the, uh, oh, in the early 1990s. Sure, about the boi- he doesn't about notice the slow boil. Yeah, if you put a frog in, in hot water, in boiling water, it jumps out. If you put it in slow water, then he got done by the animal welfare lobby. So he used to say, but of course, I always take the frog out just before. So th- there's a ba- <laughs> that you, ha- you have the frog problem, which this, is, this thing happens slowly. But you ha- I used to be in advertising briefly before I went into politics. Uh, and and you, you do have this question of how do you communicate bad news? Because if you talk too directly, too powerfully about the, uh, the, the, the crisis for humanity that we're actually, we all know we're facing, you can, you can just, people just shut down. Par- paralysis. Yeah. Yes, you get the, the paralysis of fear. So the, 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 this, is a, this is a real task for politicians both here, state, nationally, and globally. How do you tell a story about this which motivates people to recognize that, that, that they make a difference, their choices make a difference, without everyone going, oh, my God, either I'll be dead by that time or it's such a mess, we might as well just party. Well, Holmes, the scientific community has often been uh, the vanguard and, and ringing the alarm bell for the world. Um, do you think that people are, uh, and yet the science is still still debated. I mean, Al Gore might say the debate's over, uh, but there was a conference of uh, skeptics or so-called skeptics or self-described skeptics and deniers last week uh, in New York. Uh, uh, and yesterday in the, in the San Francisco Chronicle, there was a torrent of skeptical comments about five feet of sea level rise in San Francisco, saying, hooey, it won't happen. It's glow, B-U-L-L, warming. Uh, do you think the scientific community is getting through and being heard on this? The scientific community has been emphatic, emphatic and extremely thorough. What The, the references that you've just made are to functions of scientific expression that could not stand uh, a chance against the level of depth of review and engagement uh, among the predominant science organizations around the world. I don't necessarily believe that it's worth our time here to engage in the scientific integrity discussion of what happened in, in the meetings last week. What I would like to point out is that Arnold Schwarzenegger has in some ways passed the buck on his own responsibilities as a civic leader by putting the responsibility on scientists to communicate to a public that, in fact, he is leading. And when you want a a community to respond to a crisis, first they have to understand that it is a crisis. Uh, Governor Schwarzenegger spent half of this year trying to communicate to the state that the budget was a crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, the The state and all the citizens in it would not have perceived that to be a crisis at all until the state employees didn't show up for work one day. It was actually an emphatic campaign on the part of the Schwarzenegger administration for months on end to convince the Californian citizenry that the budget was a crisis. And that is just one example or parallel to point out that civic leaders of every stripe and at every level hold a responsibility to be honest with the citizens about the impacts of our choices as consumers and our obligations as citizens of the world. So are you saying that it, are you pointing, your point is that it was really hard to convince the people that they took them a long time to realize what in fact was a crisis? Is that what you're saying? It is my perception that the citizens of California would not actually have hit the same level of five bell alarm that Arnold Schwarzenegger was ringing without him making the headlines on an every-few-day basis for literally three months. 
Okay. We don't have anything like that from his administration about water stress in the Sierras. My point is simply that the science is clear. The science has been consistently and emphatically communicated. And the lack of participation by public policy leaders in the United States, aside from retirees, has yeah. made it very challenging to develop the ballast, the, the underpinnings of a strong climate policy in the United States. But I, but I, I think, Greg, we, we need to be clear about this. I mean, I spend half of my time teaching public affairs, lobbying. How do you influence governments? And I have tracked for 20 years the funding of the, uh, the climate skeptics by the fossil fuel industry. I mean, you can say that's a perfectly legitimate defense of their interest of trying to keep fossil fuels alive for as long as possible. I regard it as a pretty close to a mortal sin because they're endangering the whole planet. But nevertheless, there well, is a... Well, James Hansen says that they are uh, guilty of crimes against humanity. Yeah. Um, uh, but we have to take account of the reality that there are people who have a very strong commercial interest in denying the science. Uh, some of them actually tried to buy me when I was a politician back in 1990 and actually offered me large consultancies on what was then the Global Climate Coalition. And I explained that I might be a conservative, but you I was... say which a, company? Uh, he was a man representing the Global Climate Coalition, which represented in those days the fossil fuel industries, the car companies. And he told me... Uh, just openly, he said, we have a chokehold on the U.S. Congress. I can assure you, this is 1990, I can assure you that no legislation will go through the U.S. Congress on this so-called climate change nonsense. And uh, that chokehold is over? I'm sorry? Do you think that chokehold is over? No, but I think there are residual spasms to it. In other words, I think the... uh, the, the, All right, just the chokehold is broken. But my goodness, it's taken... We've wasted 15 years. And, and it's not just in the U.S., because we had the similar pressures in, uh, in, in Europe, etc. Uh, so this is, you know, we're not, we're not just discussing something in a kind of kindergarten. There are big uh, economic forces on both sides of this argument. Uh, I, I, I am impressed by the way some of the fossil fuel industries have shifted their position and realized that you need to define yourself now not as a coal company or, or as an oil company, but maybe as, as an energy company, and you make that, they make that sort of shift to alternative energy. The, the, the question for me is, are we going to be able to manage the, the lobbying and the politics of this in, in, time for the, um, <clears throat> in time for the consequences for the climate? Because you, you can't negotiate with the weather. You can't lobby, uh, you can't lobby the planetary um, system. So we're actually running just very, very tight timetables now, which is why Copenhagen is so important, which is why the American return to these negotiations ahead of Copenhagen is absolutely crucial, and why the balance between uh, how the Obama administration manages the internal discussion and the relationship with Congress on U.S. domestic climate policy with its international commitments and what can be said and what... Because you, you are still the biggest players in this game, and the nicest possible way you've been in denial for for eight years, you're back. It is very, very important, the decisions which American politicians take in the next two years. Let's wrap up here shortly. Uh, We've talked about water. We've talked about geopolitics. Uh, One issue related to water, and California's Secretary of Food and Agriculture uh, mentioned this at the Delhi conference that that Tom Spencer and I both attended, uh, and that is a water crisis is a food crisis. And, Holmes, you talked about people feeling the water impacts immediately. Uh, And it's also uh, Steve Chu, the U.S. Secretary of Energy, recently talked about California 
California agriculture being devastated by by the water uh, water stress. So let's just finish up on food because I think that ties together uh, both the Tibetan plateau sure. and, and because that feeds agriculture in, in South and yeah. South South Asia and, and China. And in, and let's start with California in terms of. How is the water going to impact California's agricultural industry? Because perhaps that's when people start to, uh, when lettuce costs more or jobs start to be lost, that might uh, ring some of the bells you've been talking about, Holmes. Part of the rationalization of water management in California will involve reconsidering the pricing. And agricultural uh, users of water are able to use an enormous amount of water for a fraction of the cost that city users pay for it. Uh, I mentioned earlier the water stress under our current policy regime will put California in a position where people are really uh, under in a state of stress themselves because of the water stress. I suspect that we will see the pricing rationalized in a way that the agricultural interests will at some point need to compete with urban users who are willing to pay many times more for the same amount of water, in which case the urbanites can remain in California, but the agricultural productivity of some of our desert agricultural lands in the southern part of the state become marginal, uh, if not unprofitable altogether. You're talking about a big change in the disruption in the California economy and the ag economy in this state. That would just be on the basis of water pricing policies responding to water stress that's not even getting to the actual temperature impacts on agricultural productivity, which have already cast a pall over the vineyard industry, which is the cash crop in in the Northern California region, where there have been several reports uh, putting all of the vineyard owners on notice. Andrew, you live in uh, Palm Springs or Palm Desert, which is uh, an artificially irrigated area. How how do you think water is going to affect the economy there? And do you agree with Holmes that 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 uh, there'll be, a, I think, rationalization, which is a word for increase in water prices. Absolutely. I live in Palm Springs, and, and um, I absolutely agree with Holmes. I mean, the problem is that both water and energy in this state and really around the country are, are you know, the, the cost of the consumer really do not reflect the, the, the cost of production. And um, I'm on the Palm Springs Economic Development Corporation uh, Board of Directors, and one of the issues that we talk about, obviously, like any other such entity, the goal is to bring industry and business, new business, to the valley. Uh, and what I struggle with, quite frankly, is talking to people and saying, look, the, 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 the problems are real. The challenges that we will face over the next 20 years, and again, because of new science and new scientific data, uh, this is an accelerated process, and we need to understand that. Um, but it, it's frankly, is very difficult, really, to to get people to grasp this, simply because, for all the reasons we've discussed, uh, you know, there is yet to be a, a political a political expression that indicates that these problems are really something we need to pay attention to. We don't have a lot of time. Um, before these stresses are going to really begin to impact um, our everyday lives, and people really are resistant to the idea of having to change uh, the way they live. And frankly, where I live in the desert, you know, golf courses are everywhere, and verdant lawns are everywhere. And and, and a lot of liberals, people on the political left who might consider them environmentalists, will also fight increases in water prices because they'll say it, it will hurt the poor dis, uh, disproportionately, et cetera. I mean, try getting the water price increase through a local PUC, right? I mean, there's going to be all sorts of opposition on different levels to, uh, to rationalizing water prices. We, we either will fight these battles now or we will fight much bigger ones later. It, it really is a question of timing. So, Tom, the, Spencer, the big picture here, also the Tibetan Plateau, uh, which 
which provides drinking water for more than a billion people. And so, so how will that affect food? Um, the water stress we're talking about affect the, the food chain and food supply in that area. Do you remember when we had a spike in food prices, rice in particular, uh, last year? We had because of a, the Australian drought. Yeah, but well, the Australian okay. drought and, and problems with rice, etc. We had food riots in 40 countries. I mean, it just went, it rippled around the world. And people then immediately started to produce uh, protectionist responses to that. And so the, this connection between climate, security, trade, it's all one picture. But we, we just have to recognize that as humans, we're part of that, of that single, single picture. And water, water, food, migration, these are immediate things, which you actually, you, we, we, we've seen a, a, a trial run of this in the, in the Sahel, in West, the, the, the wars in Darfur, etc., where climate, the climate changes mm-hmm. drives mm-hmm. one tribe, mm-hmm. one peoples into another person's territory. This is not going to be something that just happens in distant Africa. Right? This is, this, unless we move very rapidly, this is the future for all of us. And that's why I personally believe that the sort of thing which the Institute for Environmental Security is looking at, and which we want to look at more intensely here in, in California, uh, is, is, is central to the debate. That, that, that we're not talking a series of isolated pieces of science. We're talking about the future harmony of humanity. And we really only have three or four years left. And on that note, we'll wrap up here. Tom Spencer is vice chairman of the Institute for Environmental Security in The Hague. Andrew Vincent Alder is the senior fellow and California representative of the Institute for Environmental Security. And Holmes Hummel is a lecturer and specialist in climate policy at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for joining this podcast.